Indeed, may we never lose the wonder of Christ's mercy for us. This morning, as we look at God's Word, we'll be in Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. We're continuing today in our series called Focused in the book of Romans chapter 8, looking at eight messages. Today is the fourth one in the series. And we've been learning about maintaining our focus. We've been learning about how to effectively follow Jesus as his disciples. We must maintain our focus on him and his gospel of grace. And so the gospel itself is the message. The gospel is the message of God saving sinners through the death and resurrection of his son for his own glory to be displayed. And this gospel, this message, through the power of his spirit, changes everything in our lives. And we must, as we just sung, focus on the mercy of our Father who sent his Son for us. And as we talk about being focused, talking about living a gospel-centered life. So by definition, a gospel-centered life is where everything that a person thinks, says, and does is radically transformed by the grace of God as seen through the cross of Christ. So being gospel-centered means everything that you say, think, and do is changed by Jesus as we focus on his overwhelming mercy. Now, it's not hard to say that everything is transformed. It's not difficult to say the words that everything that we say, think, and do is transformed. It's easy to say, but to actually do, to actually live a life that is transformed by God, to actually live a life where we have things like purity, where we have things like integrity and self-control and patience and generosity and kindness and sacrificial service and zeal to tell others about Jesus, to live a life that is truly transformed, a life where your public and your private life match up. Now, that's a whole different story. We can talk about it on a Friday morning, and everyone says, oh, yes, preach it, preacher boy. But it's not the same when you're living it out. It's much more difficult to actually do, and it takes effort. We've been talking in this series about Holy Spirit-empowered effort. When I, when I think about the, the challenge of the idea of what we desire and the actuality and how they're different, I, I think about going home. Now, when I say going home, really, home is to come out of for us now almost two years. But when I'm talking about going home, I'm into the home country, what, what I used to call home, in my case, back in the U.S., but more importantly, Texas. Um, and so when you go home, you think, oh, it's going to be great. I can't wait to go home. We're going to board the Etihad flight, right? Etihad, yay. And, and it's going to be only 14 hours before you get there. And, and then it's going to be great because you'll see your friends and your family. And, and it's wonderful until it's not. Because you're driving all around creation, seeing people who won't drive to where you're staying, right? Or is it just me? Just my family? No, right? And then, not only that, but I'm on an air mattress for like four weeks. And it was like, what? And then you're renting cars, 
and you're going out to eat way too much, and your bank account is shrinking by the day, and I'm checking my text messages, and my wife's sending money, and I'm like, oh, stop. And I'm thinking, why didn't we leave Abu Dhabi? I should have just stayed home and not come home. And then, and then you get back here, which is what I consider home now, our faith family, our lives are here, and then you're tired. You're just like, oh, man, that holiday was exhausting. And a lot of times, the idea of something is much better than the reality of it. And in terms of spiritual growth, and being transformed by the Spirit, and living a gospel-centered life, but the life of victory is much the same. Where we want it, we desire it, and we talk about it, and, but then the actuality, the reality of doing it, sometimes don't quite match up. And it's everyone, it's husbands. Here in the room, a lot of you are married, most husbands, and sometimes, of course rarely, but sometimes you fail to respect or to honor your wife. You failed to wash the dishes when you said you would. I've never done that for the No, actually, I have. And sometimes you don't teach your children how you know you're supposed to. But it's not just husbands. It's wives, too. Sometimes you don't encourage your husbands. And sometimes you're not as big as cheerleader. And you don't, you don't respect him. But it's not just the married. If you're unmarried in the room, you can get so used to being alone because you're not married that you actually forget the need for community or you forget the need to maintain purity for a potential future spouse. But it's even teenagers, because I know you're in the room too. So it's not just adults. It's youth that are also here where sometimes you don't respect your parents. Sometimes you don't obey your parents and you lose your temper and you are not pleasing Jesus. You're not. And so all of us have our struggles. Every single one of us has issues, errors in our lives that, are, that we find difficult, that are challenges for us. And so it takes effort for all of us to really live this gospel-centered life that results in transformation. It's not easy, but by God's grace, as empowered through His Spirit, we can follow our Master Jesus and learn to be like Him. And listen, you have to hear this. There is there is hope for you. I don't care if you think today that you're doing great spiritually or if you think you don't belong in the room. Wherever you are on that spectrum, we all can have hope to become the men and women that God wants us to be. And so today, this sermon is called Gospel-Centered Life. There is hope. We absolutely have hope. This is important. Let's read out of our text today, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who 
have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. <clears throat> Amen. Let me give you the overarching truth, the primary thought, the main idea from this text that we're going to work from. The main truth is that the gospel provides hope in the midst of pain and struggle. That's what this text is about, is that the gospel provides hope in the middle of pain and struggles that all of us can have. Because we all have them. But where do you find hope? You find it in the gospel of Jesus. Now, when I say hope, you may have some thoughts in your mind on what that word means and how we use it in our daily lives. And so some people, when they think of the word hope, what they mean is like a strong desire where they really want something, but they doubt they're going to get it. Like, oh, I hope to get something, but you know you're not going to get it. Like, I hope to win the lottery. Like, you, you desire to win it, but you don't expect to actually do it. But I hope to have it. It's this empty feeling. All the people talk about hope as it's something that they've worked towards, they put effort in it, and then the results are still not known or still to be determined. And so you're a parent, and you work really hard, and, and you say, I hope that my kids turn out okay someday. It's not known yet, but you're putting your effort into it. Or other people talk about hope as in, well, I hope I get a good grade on that test. Well, you already took the test. Your hope isn't going to change. You got a good grade. It's already done. You don't know the grade yet, though, and so you hope. And so sometimes we use this word hope in different ways, but in the Bible, when you read here in Romans 8 about hope, it's not some empty feeling or some aspiration, hoping things are not okay. That's not what it means here in Romans 8. In, in the Bible, when you read hope, what you're reading is assurance. You have this absolute confidence expectation. It's very close to faith. And so it is the assurance with confidence, and we hope for it patiently. And the reason why there's an assurance with our hope is because it's rooted in absolute, total truth. Our hope is built upon, our hope is grounded in the character of God. And so because our hope is built upon who God is and what God does, we have hope. And we don't have to just say, well, I hope, and it's this empty feeling. No, I hope, and it's grounded, and it's based upon God's very own character. And so because of that, we can have hope in the midst of pain and of struggle because it's in the gospel, and the gospel reveals who God is and what he's about. And so the gospel provides us hope in the middle of pain and struggle. And this text gives us three primary truths. There's a lot that could be said, but I want to narrow it down so that we don't miss lunch, right? So three truths about finding hope through the gospel. So three specific ones. So do you want to feel hope swelling up inside, bubbling up and spilling over? If you want to really sense this assurance, this hope that God is with you and he's going to transform you, if you want that kind of a hope, you must focus on three things here. One is what God has done. Two, what God is doing. Three, what God is going to do. Past, 
present and future, who God is and what he's about is what will bring up, swell up this hope to continue living and following hard, chasing after Jesus and pushing away things that would compete for your affections for him. So the first one here is what God has done. Now, the apostle begins verses 18 through 19 in this paragraph, and he begins talking about the future and what God will do. So we'll save that for the end. It's kind of a bookend. He begins, and then he ends with the future. In the middle, talks about past and present. So we'll save verses 18 and 19 for the end. Let's read first what God has done, verses 20 through 22. We'll, we'll read it again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That is a very important verse to help us to understand why pain and evil exist in this world. This morning, I say with a heavy heart that there are hundreds of people, maybe even thousands, that this morning are just in absolute anguish. Their hearts are so troubled because 239 people boarded a plane in Malaysia that never got to Beijing, China. Still don't even know where the, where the plane is or what happened. You, can you imagine it's been a week tomorrow when the plane took off, how they feel? Moms and dads and children were on that plane. And the ripples of how many people this morning, they just don't know, and, and they're losing this sense of expectancy of seeing their loved ones again. And this is absolute evil. The, the fact that that happened is horrible. It's evil. It's bad. And it's not just lost planes. It's people that have cancer. There are millions on this planet that have cancer. And then there's billions on this planet that have broken relationships. And there are, I would say, billions, but arguments take at least millions that live under corrupt and oppressive governments. And you look across this planet, and you see a lot of brokenness. You see a lot of pain and starvation and evil, and you just wonder, well, of course this is why the Bible says that creation has been subjected to futility. Literally, that means cursed with vanity or with emptiness is the word there for futility. It's broken, it's empty, meaningless. And it says that the world is in bondage to corruption. It's enslaved, it's chained to corruption. And the whole creation we just read, the whole creation has been groaning in pain. And so the language here is that the cosmos, the universe itself, is being personified as the universe is in pain and is, is shackled to death and corruption and futility and emptiness. And this is pretty heavy. You're like, I don't like this sermon, Pastor. Why'd you pick this text? Well, it's in, it's in Romans 8, so we have to work through it. And so this is, this is heavy stuff. And some are thinking, uh, Preacher, I thought you said that we were looking at what God has done. Are you, are you saying that God has done this? That it's because of God that we have all of this pain and brokenness in this world? And some people would say yes. There are some people that would argue that it's God's fault. And they'll say, if God exists, he must not be good. 
Because how could a good and powerful God allow this to happen? Either A, he's not good, or B, he's not powerful because he would like to stop the pain and evil, but he can't. Or C, he just doesn't exist. And so there are many people that struggle with this, called the problem of evil, the problem of pain. We don't have time to get into this big old philosophical discussion because we want to say in the text, but this text is describing the reality of brokenness and pain and evil in this world. And I have some news for you, that God does exist, and he is good, and he is on his throne, and he has a good plan. And so we need to see this in its context. And so what has God done? One, we see here God has created. So what has God done? He's created. How do we know? Well, five times in this one paragraph, he says creation over. There's this repetition of it has been created by the creator. And so God is infinitely wise. And God is infinitely creative. And thus, he creates to display his glory by making things. And so, what does this mean for us? It means that we can trust God. Because creation shows that He's eternally powerful, and that He's wise, and sovereign, and good, and what He created originally was good. He knows what He's doing. So we see God created, but also we see that God has judged evil. We see that. Because it says in verse 20, it says that the creation was subjected by God. So it was God who subjected his good creation to futility. So literally, God put a curse of vanity. God cursed this world. Why? Because our original father and mother, Adam and Eve, Adam rebelled against God's loving authority and rule. Adam represented all of humanity. And so when Adam rebelled. The world was then cursed in judgment by God. And so we are under the curse of sin and death, but we have ourselves to blame because you and I willingly, gladly, daily follow the example of our father Adam. When he started, we gladly continue sinning. And so we can't blame God. He is good holy, and he made the world good, but humanity has rebelled. And so thus, because God is holy, he must uphold justice. He must. That's what a good judge does, is uphold justice. A bad judge fails to. He's a good judge, and so he has judged the world rightly, justly. Again, to display his glory. So we see here that what has God done? He created, he has judged the world rightly for our evil. And last, we see here that God has promised redemption. We see that in the same verse. It says that God is subjected to futility, so God judged. But how? It says in hope, in verse 20. He, yes, as a good judge, he must uphold justice. He is judging, and yet in hope with a plan, a plan for redemption, a plan to restore, a plan to fix what is broken. See, God is merciful and he is gracious. Yes, he is holy and just, but he's equally merciful and patient and loving. 
And so he then saves, he redeems through his son Jesus to also display his glory. So it says that creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. It will be liberated and it will obtain freedom. So God promised redemption. He has a plan to restore this brokenness. And in verse 22, it talks about the pains of childbirth and that creation longs to be delivered from this pain. Now, husbands, a lot of you have pregnant wives. This is great. I love it. I church a lot of kids and a lot of pregnant women. It brings me joy. And so for those of you that have wives pregnant, that's your first child, I have some free advice for you. All right? Listen. When your sweet, dear bride is in the delivery room, and she's sweaty, and she's screaming in pain, and it's not her best look, okay? And she's delivering your child, and you pull out your iPhone and take a picture while she's in, 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 in labor. Um, you might not live to see your child. I'll just say that. Your wife likely won't appreciate you taking your picture in the middle of labor. However, if you're patient, and then she gives birth, and she's holding your precious child, then pull out the iPhone and take a picture of your wife now as a new mother. That is a beautiful picture of the pain has passed. She's been delivered. And now out of this pain, something beautiful, something glorious has been birthed. Life has come out of the excruciating pain. And so what you're seeing here is that the world is in pain longing to be delivered, and God sent the deliverer. Jesus himself endured the curse, the curse that the Father put upon the earth to judge rightly. He then sent his Son to endure the curse, for curse is anyone that hangs on a tree. And Jesus hung on a tree and endured the curse of God for you and for me. He endured our guilt and our shame. He endured it all. God's wrath was poured upon Jesus. His holy righteousness was poured upon Jesus, and he endured it all to show God's glory in saving you and me, rebels, from our sin. Praise be to God for the gospel of Jesus. This is what we're about. This is the point of the gospel, is that we can't save ourselves. We can't. But God did it for us by sending his son who endured the curse, and childbirth will end, and life will come. Out of this painful, broken world, Jesus is victorious. He is now the new Adam, who, if we're in him, he represents us, and we can stand before God clean. And for there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We've been looking at that passage in this same series. Do you need a fresh dose of hope in your life? I'm serious. Do you need a fresh just breathing in? Like, it's been so windy today. It's so weird for here. All of this sand blowing everywhere. Well, do you need the Spirit to blow in your life and give you a fresh sense of hope that God is with you and He's going to help you? You can. Because all of us have fears. And so I would ask you to just think for a moment. What causes you fear? What are you afraid of? 
What causes you anxiety? So what do you really worry about? When you're alone, when it's just you, what do you, what do you get angry about? Which just, just ah, makes you so angry. What are you battling today? Because there's something that you're battling. Because you're human. You're not in heaven yet. I guarantee you, you're battling something. What are you battling? If you want to truly sense that there is hope, hope to overcome what has overcome you, you must focus on what God has done for you. Remember what God has done by sending Jesus crucified for you. You look to the cross and you see love. You see mercy as endless as the sea. That's what you see on the cross. How do you know God loves you? You look to the cross. That's proof. There's no greater display of love than Jesus crucified for you. This is what he has done for you to show how glorious he is in judging and redeeming his creation. So that's what God has done. Focus on the truth of what he has done for you. Second, focus on what God is doing. You must focus on what God is currently, right now, today, as we speak, what he is doing in your life. Verse 23. He says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So it says, We wait eagerly. So God made a promise to redeem. He kept it when Jesus came to restore this broken world. He says, but even we, so the world is broken, but so are we. We personally are broken and need redemption. So it says, we ourselves, we groan, and we wait eagerly for the completion of our redemption. When we get to heaven, and the pains and the struggles of this world are history, it says that we, are, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. So the full harvest isn't complete. But we're the first fruits. And so the spirit living inside of you is proof that the day will come when God is going to resurrect your dead body and you will be in the new heavens, the new earth, forever with our Savior. That's what awaits us. And the evidence, the first fruits, is the fact that you have the spirit. You have the down payment, the guarantee, the deposit. It's going to be good. You can trust God to complete what he already started because you have the Holy Spirit. And we must battle against this remaining sin. We looked at this last few weeks. It's in the same text on killing our sin and eradicating this remaining sin. So we have this inward groaning to have the completion of our adoption and of our redemption, which will happen one day. So we need to focus on what God is doing right now. So what is he doing right now? Like right now, what is God actively doing in your life? I don't know the specifics, but I can tell you generally what he's doing in your life. If you're a believer, I can tell you that God is sanctifying you. Major theme in Romans 8, that the Spirit of God who is holy lives in believers, and he sanctifies believers. He makes us more holy. Sanctify means to make holy. Big word, don't overthink it. 
It just means to be made holy, to grow in sanctification. means to grow and be more like Jesus. To love your wife better. Keep it simple. To teach your kids and love them. To be a better employee. To tell others about Jesus. To have integrity. It's just to live a life that pleases God. We grow into being more like the Master. And it's a process. Learning to be like the Master is a process. It requires our effort, empowered by His Spirit. Let me give you a thought. I want you to ponder this. I want you to think about this this week. I can give you a lot, but I'll keep it as simple as I can. Is going to give you one thought to really ponder and think about, chew on this week, about how you can really grow in your sanctification, grow to be more like Christ. What you must do is your mind must be transformed. It begins and ends right there. Your mind must be transformed. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that we have the mind of Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, it says, take every thought captive to Christ. It's like, capture your thoughts. It's saying, hold them prisoner. Don't let your thoughts run wild. You know, there are some of you in the room that, that your, your mind is a zoo. I know we meet in a zoo, and it's kind of funny. But your mind is a zoo, and there's no cages. And the animals are running wild in your mind. Not harnessed. No restraints. The Bible says, take your thoughts captive. Hold them. Put them in a cage. And then kill them. So this is what we're talking about, is having a mind that's transformed. Which is why later in Romans 12, same book, chapters later, verses 1 and 2, talks about having your mind transformed. So it says having your mind renewed. So that's the reason why this is being talked about. So here's some thoughts for you to consider, that your thoughts, when you think about, will create in your mind images, pictures. You'll create feelings, and you'll create even perceptions about other people or the world around you. And even when you do things without thinking about it, like just spontaneously, things that you will do, even those things that you do without thinking about it, they come from a memory that's already been logged into your mind. And so it's just like muscle memory. You just do. Like you drive to work the same way, and you're like, whoa, how did I get here? I don't even remember one stoplight, but I got here, and I didn't die in Abu Dhabi. Well, how? Because your memory, you just do it unconsciously. And so when you do things, sometimes not the best things, without thinking about it, you just do it, it's still coming from what's in your mind. It's logged in your memory. And let me just say this. You cannot be like Christ without thinking like Christ. You can't. You cannot be like Christ without thinking like him, which is why it says that we have the mind of Christ. And so when Paul talks about be transformed by the renewal of your mind in Romans 12, 2, He's talking about like a reprogramming of your mind, having your mind reprogrammed where you're doing an exchange, where you're exchanging your ideas, your perceptions, your images, your feelings, and you exchange them for those of Christ so that you think like he does. And whatever it is that you're doing or thinking about, you're thinking Jesus is literally with me because, by the way, he is. You have his spirit in you. 
So what you see, he sees. What you say, he hears. What you do, he's right there with you. And so we have to practice the presence and realize, intentionally think and meditate, contemplate on the reality that Jesus is with you all the time. His spirit indwells you. His spirit interwoven with your spirit in you, making you more like him. It is absolutely mind-boggling and glorious, but we have to focus, which is why we call the series Focus. You see, the work of the Spirit, what He does inside of us is He changes our desires where we hate our sin and we love to obey. It's not religion that says, do more, do more. No, no, no. You already have Jesus. You already have forgiveness. You already have Him. He loves you. He accepts you. He approves of you. And so what happens is now because of that, we don't want to displease Him. We don't want to have God's presence in our lives clouded. See, if we don't think about these things and meditate and spend time reading the Word, you have to read this, and you have to focus your thinking on it, and and you have to pray and experience God's presence. If you are not intentionally doing that, you know what's going to happen? I can tell you what's going to happen. Satan's going to come and bombard you. He's going to attack you. You're not going to have the strength to fight him off. And he's going to build in your mind strongholds. He's going to build in your mind these fortresses of evil. And then you're just going to do things without even thinking about it. You just naturally, you just do it because it's already in your mind. And then what has to happen is you have to submit and repent and then begin to let spirit tear down those strongholds. I was talking to someone in our church just this week. Uh, I was very encouraged by him. He was talking to me about how he's been hearing the last few weeks on focusing on the gospel and on killing your sin. And he has really desired to pursue purity. And he came to me. He's like, Pastor, I've had this, this real stronghold in my mind. And I felt it this week, understanding these things. I felt it for the first time being really torn down. I'm beginning to think differently. I'm beginning to have a clear conscience now. And God's beginning to really heal me as I'm focusing on his mercy. And what he said was so insightful to me. He said, you know what the difference is? I said, what? He was like, the difference has been that this week I got it. I understood that I need to be satisfied in Jesus. And I was like, we talk about that all the time. And he was like, I know. I've, I've known this for years, but for the first time, Got it. Because I've always understood being satisfied to mean that God gives you just enough. That God gives you just enough spiritual food so that you don't die. God will sustain you, but just barely enough. And that's been his perception for a long time. And this week he got it. Oh my goodness. What Jesus does is he fills you where you're overflowing. And God doesn't give you just enough. He overwhelms you. And like he rains on you where you're soaked and you're just completely drenched in his love and in his mercy and his presence can be overwhelming to you. And so when he got this, the strongholds began to crumble in his mind. And so God promises to satisfy you 
He promises to give you the mind of Christ. But understand that this does take our yielding to the Spirit, our not quenching, not resisting, not opposing His sanctifying work in our lives. God so loves you. He so delights in you that He wants you to enjoy Him, which is why He wants you to put down those things that would compete for your affections because it competes for Him and He knows that only He can satisfy you. And we have the promise, the guarantee, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. He indwells us and we have the hope. This is the evidence that He's not done with you yet. He's still working on you. You're a work in progress. Hang in there. Focus on what God has done and focus on what He is doing through the Spirit to change you. Will you come out of the shadows? Because I know some of you are hiding in the shadows. You know you are. You know that you're hiding. It's a little dark in here, so there's shadows in here this morning, but I'm talking about in your soul. You're hiding. Will you let the light of God's grace shine and you can clearly see what's around you and step out of the shadows and walk into the light where you can have repentance and then refreshing and a clear conscience and enjoying God's presence like never before. But only will this gospel of grace give you the courage to step out and come out of the shadows, repent of your sin, and experience God's presence like you've never experienced before. And he will help you learn to have his mind and live a gospel-centered Focus on what he has done on the cross for you, what he is doing through the Spirit in your life right now as you yield to him. And lastly, as we close, focus on what God will do. Last point is very brief. I know it's almost time to go. What God will do, Romans 8, 18 and 19. It says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. And so he says that the present sufferings, the present struggles with sin, all of these present realities that are part of our lives right now can compare to what's coming. There's just no comparison to what is coming, what God has planned for you on that last day when Christ returns. And so we keep our eyes focused on him. And let's finish this paragraph, verses 24 through 25. For in this hope, you were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, or who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patience. We have hope. Absolute assurance. Count on it. You have the guarantee of the Spirit. You have hope that one day God is going to complete what he began in your life. He's going to complete your salvation, you will be glorified one day and you will be with him in heaven when Christ returns. And in the end, the future of the universe and the future of humanity will, will come together. And on the new earth, what will happen is all of this sin and the remnants of this curse will be gone forever. God is literally undoing death. He's undoing sin and pain and brokenness. He's undoing it because of Christ's work on the cross. And one day he's going to consummate, complete his plan. 
and there'll be no more evil, no more pain. And at that thrilling, that electrifying final moment, what I can tell you is that the goal of our redemption will finally be reached. We'll get there. We're going to get there by the glory of God as He sustains us. He will and we will be there together with every tribe and nation and tongue praising the Lamb who was slain and will be doing this for eternity. And that is what awaits us. And every Friday morning, we get just a glimpse of what awaits us one day. And this gospel of grace is what provides us the hope in the midst of pain and struggle. Even when it's hard. Even when it's hard. We focus on what God has done. What He is doing and what He will do one day. And we'll experience the fullness of our Savior every day. Do you know Jesus? I didn't ask if you know of him. I didn't ask if you have religion or if you're a Christian culturally or casually. I asked, do you know Jesus personally? Have you ever repented of your sins and put your complete trust in Jesus alone to save you? If you haven't, then you don't have hope. But if you'll turn to him with your whole heart today, you will have this hope that we're talking about. Will you please pray with me? Father, this morning, as we have the privilege of gathering together, examining your word, we do so with expectant hearts, knowing that the work that you have begun in our lives, you will complete, and we trust you with what you will complete, Father. We still have remaining sin but we trust that you will one day complete our redemption as we're glorified with you together. And what you will do gives us hope to keep following you with the assurance that your son paid it all. And we praise you for our redemption. We praise you, Father, for you are worthy. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.